Okay, so reading from Matthew 4, verse 12 to 25. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. G'day, everybody. Uh, my name is Scott. I'm the pastor here at Trinity Church Paraka. Really good to be with you this morning and a special happy Mother's Day to the mothers with us. Good to see you guys. I want to give you a little peek behind the curtain from my point of view anyway. Normally, um, uh, when I'm sitting down to, to, to get ready and to write one of these talks, my, what I'll normally do is get my head in the passage and try and study it really hard and Figure out what's holding this all together, you know? What, what's the big idea? What's the main thing here? Because so I, I want to have something that's so clear that if nothing else, you walk away at least remembering that. And here's the big idea. In the last couple of weeks, it's been really clear what the big idea is. Um, John the Baptist came and his message was repent, and everything he did was about repentance. And last week, Jesus' baptism and temptation, we saw very clearly Jesus is the Son of God. God declares it and, and Jesus proves it. What about this week, though? Um, Hilda just read the Bible for us. We've got these three kind of little mini stories, I guess. Jesus moving to Capernaum, Jesus calling the first disciples. We see the start of Jesus' ministry. He's healing, he's teaching, he's becoming popular. Here's my question, though. What's holding it all together? Why are they here back to back to back, these stories? What's, what's, what's the main idea? What, what's, what's holding this all together? Any ideas? I've probably got to start preaching pretty soon. You, no one? Okay. Uh, now, look, honestly, we've just seen some really memorable stuff in Jesus' life. His, his, his temptation and his baptism. And next week, we're going to start seeing some of the memorable things that Jesus said in life. Things like, love your enemies, store up treasure in heaven, enter by the narrow gate. 
But in between these two really kind of memorable things, we have these three little stories. Jesus moving, getting his first disciples, starting his ministry life. What's holding this all together? I th- I, here, here's, here's what I'm convinced now. Here's, what, here's Matthew's purpose in putting these bits in his biography. He, here's why they're here. Yes, because they actually happened. But Matthew's recording it here. He's included it because he wants us to know this. Jesus is the one. He really is the one. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's, he's the one who brings life. He's the one who brings hope. He's the promised king of the world. Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus is the one. And each of these three sections show us that Jesus is the one in, in a little different way each time, but they're each are showing us Jesus is the one. Uh, I want to point out before I move along that I was really helped by, by another preacher in preparing this week, um, another preacher called Andrew Hurd in preparing this week. So here we go. Though. The first little story, uh, Jesus is the one. Matthew records to us firstly uh, Jesus' movements. He, he says that uh, Jesus was, last week he was being baptised and he had temptation down around that area, down towards the south of, the, uh, of our mat there. But then Matthew tells us he goes up north to the area of Galilee up there. Um, his childhood home was there, uh, Nazareth. That's where he grew up. He was born in Bethlehem but grew up in Nazareth. And you might think, well, Jesus goes back to Nazareth, doesn't he? But no, actually, he goes to a different place called Capernaum, which isn't even on my map, but that's roughly where that arrow is pointing there. All of this detail, let's be honest, when we're reading the Bible, most of us pass over it pretty quickly. Uh, we pay little attention to this. But, but to Matthew, this is a big deal. Because look at verse 14. Verse 14, you see that Matthew saw this as a fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus made these movements, he says, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Uh, the prophecy speaks of a, an important, significant person coming into the world, uh, one who's going to bring light, shining light into a place of darkness and death. And all of this is going to happen in the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. Uh, Zebulon and Naphtali were two sons of Jacob, uh, or Israel was his other name, and their families became uh, two tribes in the nation of Israel. And when the nation of Israel came into this land here, they were, they were given the land to live in. The land they were given in was that north land up there where Galilee is. See, Jesus moving to Capernaum isn't a random thing. He's there because this is the land of Zebulun. This is the land of Naphtali. He's going there because he, Jesus, is the great light. He's the one who's come into the world to shine light into darkness. Jesus really is the one we've been waiting for. That's the first little story. The second part of of the passage, it also shows us this. Um, Jesus is uh, walking along in around Galilee, and he comes across these guys. They're fishermen. they're, they're not just fishing for fun, for relaxing on a Sunday afternoon. The fishing is their job. It's what they do. And so Jesus comes along and he says to these guys, Come, follow me. And they do. They leave their jobs, their businesses, their stuff. They leave behind probably a, 
nice, neat, comfortable, middle-class kind of life. And they followed Jesus. Uh, There's another biography of Jesus' life in the New Testament called John, written by a guy called John. And he tells us that, that, that these fishermen, they already knew Jesus. This is not their first meeting. But they make a radical decision to get up and follow Jesus. Why? Because they get it too, don't they? They get who Jesus is. He's the one he says he is. Jesus is the one. In fact, this happens twice, not just to one set of brothers, but to two sets of brothers. And it just underlines it even more for us. Jesus really is the one. And the third part of the passage today, saying the same thing. Jesus is the one. Uh, So he starts his ministry by going all around this area of Galilee here. He travels around. And as he travels, verse 23 says he's doing three things. Firstly, he's he's teaching in the synagogues. Um, He's proclaiming the good news. And he's doing healing. So three main things that Jesus is doing. But then did you notice in verse 24, there's three things Jesus is doing. But verse 24 really only focuses on one of those, on the healing. So look at verse, verse 24 says... News about Jesus spread all over Syria, and the people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Now, Matthew doesn't come out and say this directly, but this is a reference back to another part of the prophet Isaiah. Uh, In Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 35, it talks about God's people being crushed. They're oppressed. They're under trouble. But God says to these people, I'm coming. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to rescue you. And here's what you're going to see when I come. The deaf will hear again. The blind will see again. The lame will stand up and run around and jump. And it's... That's what we're seeing in Matthew. Healing has come because Isaiah 35 has happened, because God has come. You see, Jesus really is the one. That's what Matthew's doing here. These events in Jesus' biography, Matthew's recorded them because it's what happened. But it's showing us, he's showing us time and time again, one after another after another. It's here to convince us, no, Jesus He really is the one. He's the one we've been waiting for. Here is the promised king. Jesus is the one. Do you ever have moments of doubt about Jesus? Uh, I mean, if if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, you've put a lot of stock in, in him. Have you ever had those moments of doubt where you think, maybe he isn't who he said he is? What if what if he isn't? What if I've got him wrong and he isn't? Really, the one after all. Do you know um, John the Baptist had his doubts as well? We've been hearing about John over the last couple of weeks. He was ba- we met him a couple of weeks ago. He was baptizing people. Last week we saw him baptize Jesus. A pretty important guy. Right at the start of that passage today, we saw in verse twelve that John has been sent to prison. Um, we don't hear about John for a little while again until chapter eleven of Matthew. So it's quite a bit along. But by chapter 11, it seems like for John, uh, doubts had crept in. He's thinking to himself, was I really right about Jesus? Was he the one that we were expecting? Is it really him? And so in chapter 11, he sends 
some of his followers off to Jesus. And they asked Jesus, Jesus, John wants to know, are you really the one? You know what Jesus does in that moment? He points to what's happening around him. He points to the healing and he says, look, what are you seeing here? People are being healed. You know what that means, don't you? It's, it's Isaiah 35. It's, it's the deaf hearing, the blind seeing, the lame walking. In other words, Jesus is saying, yes, I am the one. It's nice to know that someone like John has doubts, just like us. And Matthew knows this about us too. He knows that we're prone to doubts. And so he puts this here. He tells us these three things over because he wants us to see the evidence again. He wants us, he wants to help us in, in, in our moments of doubt to see, no, Jesus really is the one. He doesn't think that following Jesus means that you need to turn off your mind and stop thinking. So he gives us more and more evidence. His movements show it. His first followers show it. His ministry shows it. Time and time again, Matthew wants us to be more and more sure that we know Jesus is the one. So friends, I just want to say, in those moments of doubt, even in those moments of doubt, be assured, Jesus is the one. And in some sense, I could sit down now and we'd really have wrestled with the passage. Jesus is the one, we've got that, the big idea, main idea. Everyone can walk home and say, well, at least we've got one thing today, right? Um, maybe some of you are hoping I do sit down right now. But with the time I have left, I just wanted to raise a question. Um, there's a question I think um, most of our world would have about the passage we've just read, about the last couple of weeks, in fact, of what we've seen. Perhaps it's a question you have too. Um, here it is. There's a lot of strange stuff happening here in Matthew, isn't there? A lot of strange stuff. I mean, think of the last few weeks, what we've seen. We've seen... Uh, the Holy Spirit come out of heaven looking like a dove and landing on a man. We've seen God's voice being heard from heaven. We've met Satan and angels. We've heard about prophecy being fulfilled. We've heard about demon possession and miracle healings. What are we to make of all this weird stuff? Because by and large, we don't see this today, do we? Like, I, I think if you ask the average person, have you seen an angel? They would say no. We hear about prophecy being fulfilled. And that kind of sounds like crazy talk. You know, we've heard of um, uh, Nostradamus is the guy's name, isn't it? We've heard of Nostradamus. He makes predictions about the future, but they're all kind of very different to Isaiah. Isaiah is um, he's direct and, and, and he's precise, but Nostradamus is he's vague. It's like a horoscope where if you just think about it in the right way and close your eyes, maybe it can be fitting of your life too, but we've got direct and precise fulfillment and prophecy being fulfilled here. This is not the normal things that we see. We don't see spiritual stuff all that much in our life. And by and large, our culture thinks it just doesn't happen, does it? In fact, I want to say something about our culture. We live in a culture that's really rare. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. Perhaps our culture is even really unique. In Western culture today... By and large, we think these kind of things don't happen. We, we, by and large, in our culture, we think there's really nothing more. Uh, no God, no afterlife, no spiritual beings. Really nothing at all beyond. It's, if, if we can't see it, it's because it's not there. It's different to most cultures in history. Even across the world today, it's pretty different. Um, 
across time, most cultures have believed in a god of some kind, or gods, or at least some kind of spiritual element out there, more to life than what we can see. And, and even if there are individuals within those cultures who question this, who don't agree, by and large, they're on the outer, and everyone else is in agreement. There is something more. But in Western culture today, we're different, aren't we? By and large, our culture does life without these things. We feel like we can explain life without worrying about God and Satan and angels and miracles and all these kind of things. So we tend not to talk about it. We tend not to believe it exists. We tend to think if we want to be spiritual, we can be spiritual without that. So by and large, Western culture is in a unique place where we think there's nothing more. There's nothing beyond. Now, I probably don't need to tell you this, and this will come as no surprise, but as a church, we think differently to our culture on this question. And we're convinced there is a God. Uh, spiritual beings are real, that there's more to life that we can see. And I, I, I don't think I'm surprising any of you when I tell you that, am I? We do, we believe these things. But I just want to say now, why that's a good thing. Why it's a good thing for us to hang on to God. So I think that's part of what Matthew shows us in this passage. Ready? Why is it a good thing that there's more to life? Let me show you. Let's go. Uh, right now we're living in a world where everyone agrees things are messed up. Okay? That's not just a Christian idea. Uh, all across our world we're feeling that. And of course we could talk about something like COVID now, but uh, I want to go somewhere else because I think that really you see it even more in the energy people are throwing. Energy people are expending to try and make this world a better place. Think about all the things we're seeing today. Um, people are agitating for, for, for action on climate change because we want our world to be a better place in 50 years or 100 years or whatever it is. Uh, people are seeing um, or instances, moments of police brutality have been brought to light, and that's led to the whole Black Lives Matter movement, which is not even just a thing in the USA. It's really become a worldwide thing now. Um, because, again, we want to see a world that's, that's, more, that's, that's, that's just, that's, that's got equity in it. A couple of years ago, the hashtag MeToo thing hit mainstream, uh, a way of calling out abuse, particularly against women, because um, we want to live in a world where this doesn't have to happen. And we're still reeling from this kind of thing in Australia today, especially around the conduct in our federal parliament and, and the whole March for Justice rallies that happened earlier this year in response to that. And I'm sure there's more examples than just those there, but, but, but here's the point, isn't it? Notice how much energy is being thrown behind these things we, we we're experiencing in our world, behind these issues. This is not just a niche thing amongst a few people on Twitter. This is everywhere. There's lots of people power behind these movements and that makes so much sense. Because people are seeing there's something wrong in the world. We want to do something about it. Let's throw our energy at it because as a culture we think this is the only world there is. There's nothing more beyond. So we want to make this world as good as we can right now. Uh, here's the problem. Um, I think it's called whack-a-mole, that game where there's, there's moles pop up and you've got the hammer and you've got to 
knock them down, whack them all, something like that. Anyway, you know what I'm talking about. Um, that it feels like that's what we're doing here. We make progress over here, and it's great, but then another, another issue pops up, and another one, and another one, and it seems like we're forever trying to whack the mole, whack the issue, get, get things under control, but, but, but it seems like we just can't get things together. In human history, there are um, great moments of optimism. Uh, I remember where I was when Obama became president. I was, I was a university student, uh, and I was doing what all good university students do. I was sitting at the bar, um, uh, and there was a guy who came out of the student union building, and he was screaming, Obama's in, Obama's in. And it really um, characterized the optimism that came with Obama's election. People were thinking, this is great, it's going to mean equality for people uh, across the world, but particularly in America, equality for black Americans. By the time Obama left office, did we really see that? Here's another example. Go back a little bit further in history. Um, the early 1900s, there was this great wave of optimism across the world. People thought society was on the up and up. You know, Technology is booming. Scientific discovery is booming. Society seems to be making progress, progress, progress. And then World War I happened. And then the stock market collapsed and we got the Great Depression. And then World War II happened. And so we didn't even get 50 years into the 1900s. And this wave of optimism had died. We, we keep thinking we're getting and getting and getting ahead. But do we ever really get there? And it's not to say that those social movements are a bad thing or a wrong thing, but you've got to ask, can we really make this world into the paradise that we so desperately want it to be? Let me take you back to Matthew now. Because he also sees that our world is messed up. He, he agrees with, with what we think. He says it's broken, there's problems everywhere. Look again at how he describes it. He's quoting from Isaiah and he says... There's darkness in the world. The shadow of death hangs around here. If you actually go back into Isaiah and, 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 and look a bit around where this quote comes from, you see that this idea is only amplified more and more and more. He talks about distress and fearful gloom and yokes of burden and oppressors and bloodshed in war. It's a messed up world. And yet despite that, Matthew also speaks of great hope. For the world. He says the light is coming. No, no, no. He says the light is here. A new beginning has dawned for us. But notice, where does that hope come from? It doesn't arise from this in, within the world. It doesn't come about because we're all busy doing our bit to get rid of the evils we see around us. It comes from outside of us. The hope for something new, something different, it comes from God's action, God reaching down into our world, not our own actions. He sends light into the world. Jesus steps into our world, and that makes all the difference. And we see that, if we, again, if we go back into Isaiah, to Isaiah chapter 9, where Matthew's quoting from, it says, the light is going to come, the darkness will end, wars will stop. And then check out verse 6. This is the reason why. Why is it all going to stop? For a child is born. For to us the son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. 
He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Where does hope come from in Isaiah? It's, it comes from the child who's, who's in that world, the child who's given to us. Where does hope come? It's, 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 it's the zeal of the Lord Almighty that will bring about change for good in our world. It's the great hope for change in this world, the great hope for ending all the mess we see around us. Matthew says that comes not from us working and acting. It comes from the outside. It comes from Jesus who enters into our world. That's why Jesus' message is repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus' message is repent. Because we aren't those who, 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 who go and end all the abuses and stop all the corruption around us. That's a job for the king of the kingdom. Instead, what we do is get ready. We get ready for the king to come and do his work. Repent is about getting ready, about turning back to the king. We get ready for the king to come and do his work. And in Matthew, we see a taste of what it's like when the king brings his kingdom, diseases healed, suffering and pain gone, demon possession ended, seizures stopped, paralyzed, healed. It's a taste of what it's going to be like in Jesus' kingdom where there's no more death or mourning, no more crying or pain, no more abuse, no more inequality, no more of the mess we see around us. Which is why Jesus sends his first followers out to become fishers of people. It's, he's talking about um, these guys are going to become evangelists, not activists. Evangelists in the sense that they spread this good news of the kingdom, not activists in that they're always advocating for change because Jesus knows our best efforts don't solve the world's problems. But it's being in Jesus' kingdom. That's when we experience the fullness that we're after. So he sends out his followers to get people ready, to get people ready for him to come. Friends, can you see why it's good news that there is more beyond? Without God, we're just on a hamster wheel, expending a whole lot of energy, going, 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 but really getting nowhere. Solving one problem, but three or four more pop up all over the place. It's Good news that there's more beyond because God has promised a kingdom, a world where the abuses will end, where the corruption will cease, where justice will reign. Let me just give you then a few things what this means for us really quickly. First, we've got to be those who care about the problems of the world. What I've said today is not an excuse to sit back and do nothing when we see wrongs around us, when we see abuses. You know, abuse of any kind is horrible. This, is, this cannot be an excuse to tolerate it and turn a blind eye. In fact, I'll say we need to be those who use any power we've got, any influence we've got. We need to be those who use it for good who call out evil as evil, 
who work to bring about change in systems and workplaces and families and homes and schools. We must. We're going to hear more about this in the coming weeks as we hear Jesus give the great Sermon on the Mount. We've got to be those who care about the problems of the world. But second, we don't do this thinking that we can set up heaven on earth. Time and time again, history has shown us that we can't do that. But the Bible tells us not to expect that we can do it either. Instead, we need to keep that core hope that we have, that our, our, our deepest longings and our greatest hopes are only met in Jesus. They're only met in Jesus. And what we really want for the world, a place of peace where, where, where there's justice and no abuse, where there's an end to oppression, that those things will only come about through Jesus establishing his kingdom. And so third then, this needs to be our message to the world. Yes, we use our power and our influence to stop abuse, to stop the wrong, to stop evil where we can. But this needs to be our message to the world, that in spite of the mess we see around us, and in spite of our efforts to bring about change that don't end up getting us anywhere, our message needs to be that real hope, that solid hope is found in Jesus. Will you let that be your message to the world, friends? Let me pray it would be for us. Our God and Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus, that he is the one, the one we've been waiting for, the king we've been expecting who came into the world. We thank you that his kingdom is good and we see just a little taste of that in all the healings he performed. God, we pray that you would convict us more and more that Jesus is the one. Help us in our doubts. And we pray that knowing Jesus is the one and knowing the, the good kingdom that he brings, Father, help us then, I pray. Please be with us to hang on to this, to be convinced of it more and more in our lives. Yes, to work hard to, 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 to stop the abuses, to bring about change that we see around us, when we see wrong around us. But help us hold on to, to the hope we have in Christ and help us be those who speak a message of hope to the world because of who Jesus is and because of what he's done. Please give us this conviction now and always, we ask. Amen.